Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. We made this. special Fight the Future Minute podcast that you're listening to. I'm Carl Sweeney, your host for this episode, and you are listening to our coverage of Minute 32 of the X-Files Fight the Future, uh, a, mi- a minute which begins on 31 minutes as we see Agent Mulder and Kurt Svile continuing their conversation, ends on 31 minutes, 59 seconds, with Agent Scully in her apartment, clearly unable to sleep. <laughs> And uh, to discuss this minute, I'm joined by Caridwen Foley again. Hi, Caridwen. Hi, Carl. How are you doing today? Hi, very well, thanks. How are you? Yeah, really, really good. And looking forward to discussing this action-packed minute, uh, <laughs> mainly. Um, but before we get there, actually, so we talked a bit about your overall opinions of the film on the last episode. Mm-hmm. So did you see this film on first run? Uh, were you a fan at that stage in the show's you know, a lifespan. Yes, I did. And I was, uh, I was a very young fan. Uh, I was 10 when the movie came out and I had been watching the series for, I think maybe about a year, maybe a little over a year at that point. I had been waiting on tenterhooks for the movie to come to our little three screen local theater. Um, it did not, you know, open on opening day there. Uh, it was a few, few weeks of sitting around and waiting. And I remember that uh, the film had been on the cover of Newsweek that June. I had just dived into that story and read it back to back to back so many times. In fact, I think I might still have that copy of Newsweek in a box in my parents' house somewhere. But my older sister had introduced me to the show, and she drove us to go see it when it did finally come out. Um, so I, I remember anticipating it very clearly. I don't actually remember a ton about the viewing experience. Um, it kind of runs together with the the subsequent times that I watched it. But mm-hmm. um, one thing I, one thing I do remember about it is going home right afterwards and immediately writing down like word for word, a bunch of the dialogue that I'd found, especially <laughs> like a memorable or charming. Um, so that, that I think is the thing that kind of rises to the surface for me most, but, but yes, I was very enthusiastic and, and at that age where like things take on very great significance. <laughs> So was one of the lines of dialogue you wrote the line, I think you're full of shit? Was that one of your favorite lines? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that one made the cut. <laughs> yeah. That's actually an interesting point in and of itself in a certain way. And you mentioned that line in the previous episode. Mm-hmm. But I guess some of the use of language in the film marks a bit of a point of difference from the TV show, doesn't it? Like, I don't think we'd hear them say that on, on the show. No, I think that uh, I think there were a lot of things that they had sort of been liberated to do you know, that standards and practices wouldn't have wouldn't have allowed through on the series itself. Um, but it was, 
I have always, maybe this is reading too much into it, but I always have kind of wondered if there's a little extra relish in that line read for exactly that reason. <laughs> yeah, which is, I can do something that's normally taboo, yeah. Yeah. So, hang on, so you were 10 years old, so um, my, my knowledge of the US rating system is a little bit... Uh, hazy so would this film what been a pg-13 or something uh yeah i think that's right i mean i was i was accompanied by uh my 17 year old sister at the time so i think that would have it's parental guidance for those under 13 i think is the nominal reason for that but i you know i don't know how strictly they were enforcing that (laughs) (laughs) i remember this was a 15 in the uk so i had to sneak in well not sneak in i had to pass for 15 (laughs) Which just about managed to do. Um, okay, let's talk more about this minute then. So, yeah, what particularly struck you about uh, this this minute, Carolyn? Well, one thing that I find myself very confused by is where Mulder is supposed to be going when he asks the cab driver to take him to Arlington. Because he lives in Alexandria. I don't really know what's happening. Maybe this is just a goof on the part of the writing team and it managed to slip through editing. But I don't know. I always I always like to kind of over-interpret those moments a little bit and wonder canonically if there's something else we're meant to think um, that where where he might have been going in the neighboring town. So, ah. I don't know. That, that struck me as funny. And they're going afterwards with Scully. He goes, they're going to um, Maryland, Montgomery County. Mm, so it's not yeah. like he's going directly to the place where the, mm-hmm. where, the, where the bodies are being stored. So I am curious about what, if it, if it wasn't just a mistake, what the idea was there. Is um is there any connection to Arlington that we know of in the X Files? Is that where the cemetery is? That where the lone gunmen are? Um yeah, that is where the that is where the, the cemetery is. Um although I don't know what I guess we know that um Deep Throat, Deep Throat is buried there. Um so I don't know if he, you know, needs to go consult with the <laughs> like commune with the spirit of his previous informant yeah. or something. Um but it does does make you I mean I don't know exactly where this seems meant to take place, although I assume somewhere, I assume somewhere downtown, like relatively close yeah. to the Hoover building. I mean, he'd be going in the same general direction if he were going home. But yeah, I don't know. That has always mystified me a little bit. Okay, so listeners, if you have any other theories, let us know, because uh, we're at a loss anyway. Duchovny's good here, isn't he? Because I think he gets in the cab, we get the music's kind of unsettled, and I, I like kind of just watching him, you know, because you can kind of see the gears turn. And then you see the moment when he realizes he has to follow up on this information he's been given. It seems like almost a sense of regret passes across his face at, at one point, doesn't it? But like ultimately, he knows what has to be done, I suppose. Yeah, there's almost it almost looks like a resignation. Yeah, um, like I have to do this. Yeah. yeah, like I like I don't fully know if I buy this, and I don't fully know if this is the guy I am at the at the moment. But it, it does seem like he just you know, th- throws us up his hands and realizes like, okay, I've got this lead. I can't in good conscience just let it lie. And then we're in Scully's apartment and apparently both Scully and Mulder's apartment, you know, of course they had to be completely rebuilt in LA for the movie. Um, somebody on the commentary says they arguably got nicer in the process. <laughs> I'll confess, I've never really thought about this and I've never really noticed a difference in the sets or anything. Uh, how about you? You know, I didn't really notice anything in the movie specifically, because I think that my mental image of both of their places is so influenced by how they looked in subsequent seasons. Cause we spend a lot more time in each of their individual apartments in the, the later seasons than we do in the earlier ones. So it's, it's very noticeable the differences between their apartments 
you know, between the early Vancouver years and the later years, but I don't necessarily like, do you know if they use the same sets in the film that then they went in to use in season six? That's a good question. No, I don't know. If, cause if not, they're really close. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing Bowman mentions on the commentary is he talks about, I think he says, um, he, he talks basically about how extremely photogenic Julian Anderson's face is to photograph. Oh my God. And I think <laughs> one of the things about doing these minute podcasts though, isn't it, is you realize, you start to realize exactly how long scenes are. And we spend over 20 seconds here just watching Scully lying in bed, don't we? And most of our time is just watching her in silence, isn't it? She's clearly unsettled. She can't sleep. And yeah, I think what that kind of reinforces to me is just how important the Cogni Anderson are to these narratives, you know, because when we, Tony and I and Sarah were talking about the way the film was promoted, mm-hmm. and it seemed like the trailers were very much about the concept and the right. plot. But actually, when you watch this, you realise that as well as that, a lot of it rests on these kind of in-between moments too, where they don't know what to do, or they need a second to think, or they come to a sudden like realisation. And you could have as well, well-written a screenplay as you like, but if your actors aren't compelling in those moments, it's going to have a massively, I guess, detrimental effect on the viewing experience, isn't it? So they really lucked out in 93 or 92, whenever it was, when they cast yeah. these two. Right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that having room for the scenes to breathe in these reaction shots is really important, especially for a, a plot that's as, uh, you know, kind of intensive and inter- intricate mm. and as you know, arcane as a lot of the stories in the X-Files are, if you don't have moments where you can just sit with your leads and watch things play out over their faces, like we did with Mulder in the cab, um, you know, you kind of have to wait and see it register and watch those gears turn for him to really understand, like, what's, what are the set of, you know, kind of conflicting priorities or emotions that his character is experiencing. And then for Scully, you know, I think it's, it's very straightforward what it is she's kind of grappling with here, but... I mean, seeing it play out on her face is a different story from just being told that in the course of exposition or watching the hearing scene. Um, this reminds me a little bit of that moment of the hallway uh, where she and Mulder have that brief conversation and she just lingers there for a second and kind of looks over her shoulder before walking away. I, I really like that, you know, moment of sitting a second to let the pacing play out. Mm. I think this is this mirrors that nicely. Yeah, and you mentioned like the intensity of the plot, and um, I was reading earlier, I went back to uh, read Roger Ebert's review from when the film uh, was released, and he, he starts off, he says something like, it's incredibly hard to review a film that you don't understand, and <laughs> he was talking about obviously coming in, having never seen the show, I presume, or having very little familiarity with it, uh, but he comments favourably on just the unforced urgency of the leads, you know, which I think is kind of what we're talking about, and arguably it's even... It's crucial on TV, on the show, but it's also very crucial here, isn't it? Because here their faces are blown up to be mm-hmm. like 20 feet high or, or whatever. I don't know exactly how big a cinema screen is, but I wonder what it was like for the cinema goers in 1998 who weren't familiar with the TV show. You know, I assume they would just have been taken in by the presence of these performers um, as we all have been, but I don't know. What, what do yeah, you that's think? a good question. Um, I mean, it's so hard for me to separate that from my own experience of it, especially, you know, since I've had had been watching it for quite a while at the point that I saw this for the first time and that I was so young. But I mean, I I think it would be very hard not to get swept into that performance a little bit. Um, And if you had any interest at all in the kind of story or if you, if you had decided that this sounded like an entertaining thing to, to check out one weekend, I think that watching it 
turn from just like a kind of creepy alien story of the kind that, you know, you were describing it having been promoted as like that, the, the kind of emphasis on plot and the emphasis on the kind of government conspiracies and aliens angle um, to then see it, you know, take these moments of being quite interior, you know, it, it might not be what you were expecting, but I think it would be very hard not to appreciate having a moment for the story to breathe and to have this new kind of emotional entry point into the story as well. So what exactly do you think is going through Scully's mind when we see her here? This obviously comes after the um, the hearing at the FBI, doesn't it? So she's at a career kind of crossroads, I guess. I guess all that's just kind of churning through her, yeah, through her brain, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it? when I watch the scene, I think a lot about um, the scenes in, what is it? I guess, um, I forget if it's in Anasazi or if it's in The Blessing. I think it's in The Blessing Way. Um, when she's really grappling with this, you know, this other career crossroads that she's at and her feelings of, you know, uh, conflict with respect to her family's expectations for her and things like that. This seems like a little echo of that coming back to me. Um, that it's not just about her own kind of professional pride or what she wants out of her career, but it seems very like, like she has a sort of sense of, being on display and a sense of shame around that because this was such a high profile incident. Um, so I think if you yeah. are being hung out to dry by the employer that you trust, who is also the government, um, I've talked previously on, uh, um, round tables about Apocrypha, uh, mm-hmm. and Piper Maru when Scully is going through having, yeah. you know, Melissa's investigation just buried and dealing with the fact that this is, you know, this is an institution that she probably still cultivates like a certain amount of dependence on and trust in. Um, and at this point, you know, just to again be hung up to dry, uh, must feel like just another betrayal in a long list of betrayals. I mean, but soon she's going to have something else to think about, isn't she? Because minute 33 brings uh, a knock at the door, doesn't it? And uh, Caridwan, you'll be back with me for that, won't you? Uh, The next episode is when Mulder and Scully talk in their apartment, which should be a good one to talk about. Okay, listeners, so that wraps up our latest Fight the Future Minute. Thank you for joining us today. Until the next podcast, remember, as always, trust no one. Previously on the We Made This Network. Here lies Amicus. This is the only time you actually get any sort of grounded history, you know, and a bit more of a background on why he's there. I mean, it's maybe five minutes. Hmm. Uh, if that. And then, and then, um, and then Dick's like, oh, I have to go. And you're like, where do you have to go, Dick? Yeah. Science got a science. <laughs> He's got to go sciencing. Uh, and, and then the grandfather says to Pat, "Oh, I don't, I don't think you should see that young man again because the devil comes in many forms." And and you're like, "Okay." How can he tell? He can't even see him. Observing the pattern, a fringe podcast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So at this point, we're getting to the uh, dropping the idea of multiple universes, the possibility of traveling from one to another. Uh, which beings that are more advanced, like us, but more advanced, yep. like in a earlier point of the timeline. So, um, so definitely seeds of things we see later. Yeah, uh, like we were saying earlier on, it, it is dropping ideas that are going to come you know, come in fully over the next what, five or ten episodes. The giddy carousel of pop. So, if you look at that front cover, there is a very obvious choice of somebody who actually should have been the cover. 
The answer to that is Janet Jackson. The choice I had to make at the time, I suppose there were three choices, were Wayne Hussey from The Mission, Margaret Thatcher, which is a whole other ball of wax, (laughs) which we'll come to, and Janet Jackson. And the reason why this fails is because he used to announce the chart, I think, on a Tuesday morning. And my decision to put Wayne Hussey in the cover would have been all about a a bet, if you like, that the mission would be higher in the chart than Janet Jackson. The magazine's gone to bed, it's at the printers, it's about to come out, and he's counting down the top 40, and the mission have gone in at, I don't know, number 32 or something. I mean, that's bad enough, but I'm now just thinking... We've just got to hope that Janet Jackson hasn't gone in the chart because he's got to 20 and he hasn't mentioned it yet. 19 and at 18, 17. I thought, oh, please God, you know. And of course, in at number four is Janet Jackson. Check out all of these shows and more on the We Made This Podcast Network. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.